Hey, it's NPR's Book of the Day. I'm Andrew Limbong. Today, we've got two nonfiction books for you that touch on this sort of bygone era of Hollywood. In a bit, we'll hear from an author who digs into the short marriage between actor and writer Brooke Hayward and Dennis Hopper, and how this relationship had actual, real-life cultural ramifications on the American art scene. But first, writer, director, and producer George Stevens has Hollywood in his blood. His dad was a big-shot movie director, and so he spent a lot of his formative years on movie sets, soaking it all in. His new memoir, My Place in the Sun, yes, is in part about schmoozing with some famous people and getting to do all the cool things that affords. But you can hear in this interview with NPR Scott Simon that it's also a story about that long road to getting your dad's respect, which is something I think even non-Hollywood types can relate to. We've got a few minutes to talk now about a book about a life that's 90 years long and still going strong. It has memories of having milkshakes with the teenage Elizabeth Taylor, producing the Kennedy Center honors, being in and out of Apocalypse Now, getting voicemails from Barack Obama who couldn't join him at some event because, you know, this uh, this president thing. George Stevens Jr., the son of a legendary Hollywood director who joined his father on movie sets, then set off to make films of his own and later created the American Film Institute. His memoir... My Place in the Sun. George Stevens Jr. joins us now. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Scott. So you grew up on a lot of famous film sets. Uh, Your father making A Place in the Sun, Shane, Giant, The Diary of Anne Frank. What did you learn about fame, talent, and film, do you think, on those sets? Well, I, I, I guess I learned a good bit about all of those things. First of all, my father um, was, as you described, a tremendously gifted filmmaker and with a great sense of humanity, but he was also a wonderful father. Mm. And the year I graduated from high school, I didn't have a a summer job. So he gave me two assignments. One was to read the books and scripts that came from Paramount Pictures, where his company was. And the other was to break down Theodore Dreiser's An American Tragedy because he was about to start the screenplay for A Place in the Sun based on Dreiser's American Tragedy. And these books were pretty dreary for a 17-year-old. They were kind of (laughs) summer treacly love stories. And one day, a small book came, and I read it in the afternoon. And I went over to see my dad, and I said, Dad, this is really a good story. I think you ought to read it. And he said, why don't you tell me the story? So I found myself trying to organize my memory of Jack Schaefer's Shane in order to tell it to him. And of course, I look back on it and I realize it was my father's way, this summer job of finding out whether I had any uh, aptitude or interest in in his racket. (laughs) Well, you talked a great film. It became a great film. Um, And I got to ask about Milkshakes with Elizabeth Taylor. Yes, I was, and she was 17 at the time. But uh, to go from Occidental College, where I was in my freshman year, to the set of A Place in the Sun, where she was working with Montgomery Clift and my father. And then uh, I was introduced to her. And then when they broke for lunch, she came over and said, would you like to go to lunch? So I found myself walking down the studio street with Elizabeth Taylor and followed her into the Paramount dining room in in her wake. 
and we um, sat down and had uh, hamburgers and chocolate milkshakes. You have actually held the diary of Anne Frank in your hands. Yes. How did that happen? Well, when my father asked me to be the associate producer on that film, and before we shot it, we went to Europe and we drove around Normandy. And then we went to Amsterdam and went to a small office building one morning, rang the doorbell, and the door was opened by a tall man, white-haired man uh, named Otto Frank, Anna Frank's father. And we went in and sat down with him. And at one moment, he went over to a filing cabinet and pulled it open and took out something wrapped in cloth, opened it, mm-hmm. and there was Anna Frank's diary um, with the pictures she would pasted in it. You know, and it was just so moving to see that object. And then Otto Frank took us to the hiding place, and we went up beyond that bookcase behind which they hid. And he, he's told my father of the day the Germans came. My gosh. That would imbue anyone with a special sense of responsibility. What do you, I mean, to tell her story, mm. but I'm going to guess also for to make the rest of your life useful somehow too. It really did. And I was always attracted. My father made stories about outsiders and underdogs, Alice Adams, the young girl trying to find her way, yeah. Shane, uh, Anne Frank, uh, Jesus, the greatest story ever told, if you will. And, uh, you know, and I found when I later, when I went to the United States Information Agency under President Kennedy, I found myself making films like The March and Nine from Little Rock that were films about social justice and later had the opportunity to make Separate but Equal, which was a story of Brown versus a Board of Education. So I found, like my father, I was attracted to those themes. May I ask, what do you watch for fun? I really love Charles Barkley and Shaquille O'Neal talking you mean, about... You mean TNT basketball? Absolutely. The, the, but not the basketball. These men are so amusing uh, and, and insightful. Yeah. They, they're very fun. They're hilarious. I, let, let me ask you this finally, if I can. After a lifetime in the business, what enthralls people? What can uplift and engage them and make a difference in their lives that entertainment can do? If you ask me the lesson that I gained most importantly from my father, it was respect for the audience. And they used to say, studio heads, that the audience has the mentality of 14-year-olds. He always said, trust them leave something for them to bring to the story. And I think, you know, people uh, find out about their own lives by seeing the lives of others. And particularly if you, if you respect them. George Stevens Jr. His memoir, my place in the sun. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Scott. Brooke Hayward and Dennis Hopper had one of those relationships that had big ups and just as big 
downs. Mark Rozo, who just wrote a book about them, said Hayward described it as the most wonderful and awful years of her life. Rozo's book is called Everybody Thought We Were Crazy, and the folks at All Things Considered put together this piece that traces their relationship onto the growing counterculture of American cool. Writer Mark Rozo wanted to explore one intersection of the cultural shifts, how new waves in contemporary art, pop music, and Hollywood films evolved. Many people suggested the person he should speak with was actress and writer Brooke Hayward. Her eight-year marriage to actor and photographer Dennis Hopper during the 1960s was a creative epicenter for some of the defining art, music, and films of the decade. Rozo met with Hayward frequently at a little tavern around the corner from her house in Connecticut. They talked about her past over BLTs and iced teas. It took a while to get her to come around to the idea that what we were talking about trying to do was a story that was really a cultural history and was a celebration of her role in all of this in 60s L.A., and that these crazy old stories of throwing a huge party for Warhol, going to the Sunset Strip to see the birds, Jane Fonda's crazy Fourth of July party in Malibu, that these were events that actually had resonance still and illuminate an era that we're all still making sense of. In his book, Everybody Thought We Were Crazy, Rozo collected these memories of the unlikely relationship between Hayward and Hopper, and he traced the way they redefined what we think of as art, both then and now. Dennis and Brooke meet each other in the spring of 1961 when they were both cast in this bomb of a Broadway production called Mandingo. And Brooke immediately loathes Dennis Hopper on sight, thinks he's too cool for school, But of course, this being a classic case of opposites attract, Brooke falls in love with him. I couldn't sleep at all last night. Very quickly, an electric romance blossoms between them. They run off to L.A. together, and off they go. They were different. Their tastes were unusual. There were only two people who worked in Hollywood who would regularly show up for um, Ferris Gallery openings and for these Monday night art walks that they had on La Cienega Boulevard, and they were Brooke Hayward and Dennis Hopper. Brooke and Dennis bought these early works by Warhol and Roucher and Lichtenstein, and they put them into this house, 1712 North Crescent Heights up in the Hollywood Hills, where you literally had no idea who was going to show up night to night. It could be Jane and Peter Fonda, Jack Nicholson, maybe even Joan Didion, or Tina Turner or Miles Davis. These people show up, they see the art in this very intimate setting, and so in this very intimate way, this art begins to be exposed to more and more people. If Dennis was kind of taking the lead on the art as much as Brooke had to sign off on every piece they bought, and often these pieces were bought care of her checkbook, Brooke had this larger vision of what this place could be. And she was the one rolling up her sleeves, throwing on the paint, putting on the tiles, and really turning it into something memorable. There were... So many people sticking their necks out to buy this kind of art that was lampooned by newspaper art critics. It's incredible to think that they were able to offer early and decisive support 
to so many artists whose work for decades now has lined the walls of museums and galleries all over the world and the pages of art history textbooks. And then on the Sunset Strip, you get that youthquake scene rolling with the birds. The spring of 1965 took the stage at Ciro's, a moribund nightclub, and suddenly it was dance, dance, dance in Hollywood. Everybody came to those shows, from the Ferris artists to the young actors like Dennis and Brooke and their friends such as Peter Fonda. And night after night, Ciro's would be a gathering place for this odd jumble of people living in Los Angeles who might not otherwise have encountered each other. Dennis was something of a holy fool for art, and being that was not always easy in Hollywood in the 60s when that industry was still very much about Dr. Doolittle and The Sound of Music. And Dennis had dreamed for a long time of bringing art into filmmaking and was struggling to figure out how he could make that happen, being a guy who didn't always have the best reputation for being the most reliable character. In 65, 66, he was developing a project called The Last Movie, and Brooke was very excited about this. She thought the treatment and the script were brilliant, but it hit a wall, it didn't get made, and Brooke said, you know, if he had been able to get that movie made then, he wouldn't have fallen into the abyss. His career frustrations mounted, he began to become more self-destructive, more violent in the relationship. But in the meantime, this other idea comes out of the blue from his good friend and would-be collaborator, Peter Fonda. When Easy Rider comes along, he feels like he can take the genre movie and feed into it all these things he's learned as a patron and supporter of pop art and a fan of rock and roll and bring this new point of view to filmmaking and make a movie about the moment. They're not scared of you. They're scared of what you represent to them. Amen. All we represent to them, man, is somebody who needs a haircut. Oh, no. What you represent to them is freedom. What the hell's wrong with freedom, man? That's what it's all about. The movie propelled the new Hollywood into the 70s, the decade of Scorsese and Coppola and Altman and Spielberg. Getting to that point was not easy. His relationship with Peter Fonda frayed, the production was chaotic, and then the biggest upshot for him personally was that his relationship and marriage with Brooke Hayward blew up. Brooke looked back on that time with Dennis in the 60s as being the most wonderful and awful years of her life. When she did see the screening of Easy Rider, she thought it was the best acting that Dennis had ever done in his life. And she said she knew it would be good and she knew he would be good because even though their relationship was over, she knew how talented he was and she was glad for him.
Mark Rosso on Dennis Hopper, Brooke Hayward, and 1960s L.A. in his new book, Everybody Thought We Were Crazy. And that's it for this week on NPR's Book of the Day. If you want more, you can sign up for our newsletter at npr.org slash newsletter slash books. I'm Andrew Limbong. The podcast is produced by Miranda Mazariegos and edited by Megan Sullivan. Our founding editor is Petra Mayer. The show elements for this week were produced and edited by Samantha Balaban, Fernando Naro, Jan Stewart, Hadil Al-Salji, Matt Ozuk, Connor Donovan, Catherine Fox, Michael Radcliffe, Matthew Shorman, Elena Burnett, and Justine Kennett. Beth Donovan is our managing editor. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.